Let's take our Bibles now. Turn to that passage again that uh, we read, Matthew chapter 27. If you turn there, again, if that Bible you'd like to use, it's provided nearby. It's page 834. You'll find the text, Matthew chapter 27. Well, today is April 1st, April 1st. And I was thinking this week, I cannot remember when Easter fell on April 1st. I thought and thought. I said, I don't remember Easter ever falling on April 1st. And then I found out there's a reason I don't remember that. The last time it happened was in 1956. So I don't remember that. Now, Doug says he remembers it, I think, but I I don't remember that. It's called, of course, April Fool's Day. I was looking, trying to find what is the origin of April Fool's Day. Where did we ever come up with such an idea? And really, the the origin, no one seems to know. Historians can't seem to pinpoint it. The earliest reference seems to go back to the Dutch people. And the very earliest reference that there's ever made to what we would call April Fool's Day is in 1561, 1561, and it was referred to as Fool's Errand Day, Fool's Errand Day, and evidently the idea was that the Dutch got a real kick out of sending people on uh, foolish errands as a joke, uh, and did that around this time in the spring, and so the idea of Fool's Errand Day was formed. And when I heard of that, I, I had to smile because I, w- I immediately, when I was thinking about a foolish errand, it went back, I went back to my sophomore year in college. Now, what a great room I had that year. Now, it was a very crowded room because the new dorm was being built. There were five guys in that one dorm room, uh, unair conditioned dorm room, I may, might add. And uh, three or four of us knew each other. We'd been there for at least a year or more. And we all had a little bit of a twisted sense of humor. And then we had one gullible freshman that joined us, okay? And I remember the first week of school, came in, and this freshman, he was brand new, and uh, came in, he was listening to some records, okay? Listening to some of his records. Now, for some of you, you can Google that, okay? Uh, <laughs> records, a plastic disc, goes round, 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 put a needle on it, music comes out. Great thing, you can look that up. But he was listening to some records, and so... Having a little fun, I said to him, I said, hey, Bruce, have you gotten those records checked? He said, what are you talking about? I said, man, this is a Christian college. You just can't listen to any kind of music you want. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong there, but you've got to get those records checked. Well, where do I do that? I said, well, the records office. You've got to take those to the records office. <laughs> Down there at the administration building. And you know he got a big stack of records under his arm. He walked across campus and went in the administration building and put them on the counter. And the lady said, may I help you? And he said, yeah, I'm here to get my records checked. (laughs) Well, I let that pass. And then a few months later, we woke up. It was the first cold morning. And uh, we had radiators in our room. And so you had to turn the radiator on, you know, to get the heat going, but we hadn't. And so that morning was kind of cold, so said said to uh, Bruce, Bruce, did you pay your radiator fee? He said, what? I said, 
We can't have heat in this room until everybody pays the radiator fee. Didn't you read the student handbook? $10 a semester before we can have a radiator turned on. He said, what? I said, you got to do this, man. He said, well, where do I pay a radiator fee? I said, you got to go to the dean of men's office like the rest of us and pay that radiator fee. And so Bruce went over to visit the dean of men, knocked on the door. He said, yes, sir, can I, can I help you? He said, yeah, I'm here to pay my radiator fee. <laughs> the dean busted out laughing. He said, boy, they got you. They sent him back to the room. Well, he got over most of that. Matter of fact, he was so traumatized, he became a pastor. He's actually a pastor. <laughs> the Lord knew I was going to tell that story this morning, and he got even with me, I think. Because before I came here over earlier this morning, I usually go and get a cup of coffee at the favorite coffee place I have, a Dunkin' Donuts. A DD stands for Drink of Divinity. I love that stuff, all right? <laughs> And I got a cup, and I took that first drink, and that young man had not put that lid down on that cup. And on my new Easter shirt that I just put on 20 minutes before, I had a whole half cup of Dunkin' Donuts all run down the front of my shirt. And I didn't say any non-Easter words, the Lord help me. <laughs> but that was payback for that story. I wanted to share, but it was worth it. Just tell that story to you. <laughs> well, this is Easter, but it's not a foolish celebration, is it? No, no. It's not a foolish celebration. Matter of fact, the greatest wisdom is to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It requires the wisest answer. You cannot celebrate the great truth of the resurrection you really can't from your heart until you have answered the greatest question. The, question, the greatest question that was ever asked. I truly believe it is the ultimate question. And it's found in the passage that we read this morning. I want you to look. Here is the ultimate question of all time. Question that it was asked. By the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate, here is the ultimate question of the ages. Found in verse 22. Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? That is the ultimate question and the ultimate wisdom is to be able to answer correctly that ultimate question and my sincere prayer is today that for every person here before you leave this building this morning you will absolutely know that from your heart you have answered correctly that question, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? Now notice with me, just for a few minutes, if you would, some things about this question. The first thing I want you to notice about this ultimate question is that it is a personal question. A personal question. Then what shall 
I do with Jesus, who is called Christ. This was Pilate's responsibility. The issue of Jesus Christ had come squarely, personally, in front of him. He tried every way he could think of to avoid it. When he found out that Jesus was from Galilee and knowing that Herod, the ruler of that area, was in Jerusalem, he tried to send Jesus to Herod. But Herod only took a little time of pleasure in mocking, making fun of Jesus, put a royal robe on him and sent him back to Pilate. Pilate tried to avoid the question by having Jesus beaten, having him flogged, scourged. But that wasn't enough for the crowd. Then Pilate tried to avoid it by releasing, saying, I'll release one of the prisoners, trying to say, well, maybe I can get him released on this holiday. But they would not have that because they cried out for that notorious criminal Barabbas to be released. No, this was a question Pilate must answer. Think about it. He had to answer his own question. Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And in one futile, empty way, he tried to wash his hands of Jesus. He said, I'm innocent of the blood of this man. And he tried to wash his hands, but he could not wash his hands of his responsibility. And likewise, my friends, this morning, none of us here can wash our hands of Jesus. This is a personal question for every person in this room. For every person in this room, here is the question. Then what shall I do with Jesus? who is called the Christ. No one else is responsible to answer this but you. Your pastor, your priest can answer it. Your ancestors could not answer it for you. Your parents can't answer it for you. No one else can answer it. You must personally answer the question, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? This is... A personal question. This is the ultimate question, but it's a personal question. Notice secondly about this question. This is an essential question. It's an essential question. Then what shall I do with Jesus? What shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? The essential message of the Bible, the essential message of this book which reveals the mind of God to us, the essential message of the Bible is Jesus. The essential issue of the Christian faith, if you boil the Christian faith, down to its essence, the Christian faith is Christ. It's not simply doctrines to be believed. It's not creeds to be held. The essence of the Christian faith is Christ Himself. It's the essential question. 
What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? Over the years, it's been my privilege, I suppose hundreds of times, to share personally the gospel of Jesus with many, many people. And on numbers of occasions, I've had responses like this. When I would begin to talk with someone about their faith, the person would say something like this. Well, listen, I'll, I'll listen more to you, but Sam, I just, you know, I need to know. Let's talk about that creation account. I just can't get there. I just don't believe science supports that. I want to talk about creation. Or maybe they say, you know, listen, I need to know how can there be such evil in the world? If God's a good God and he's all-powerful, how can he permit evil? Or they might say, you know, I just can't accept that worldwide flood. I just can't take that story, believe that story about a boat being constructed and animals going in two by two. I can't believe that. Or what about that God of the Old Testament who seems to be so vengeful? I have such a hard time with that. I always have the same answer to people who want to respond that way. Here's what I say to them. Okay, we can talk about creation. We can talk about the nature of evil. We can talk about the flood. We can talk about the vengeance of God. We can talk about all those things, but ultimately our conversation is going to lead us back to Jesus, so why don't we start with Him? We can talk about anything you want to talk about, but ultimately it's going to come back here what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? That's the essential question. The essential question is then also this, because it's the essential question, it's an unavoidable question. It's an unavoidable question. Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ. There are claims made about Christ. Claims that cannot be dismissed. They could not be dismissed in Jesus' day. Why was Jesus standing before Pontius Pilate? Why was he there? Because claims had been made about Jesus of Nazareth. Claims that he was the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God, that's the reason that Jesus was standing before Pontius Pilate because claims had been made and Jesus had made those claims for himself. Jesus' own testimony was that he was the Christ, the Son of God. You know, the very first recorded statement of Jesus in the Bible is Jesus saying that he is God's son? Do you remember? He went up to the Passover with his mom and dad. Then they were separated from him. They looked for him for three days, so worried. And then they found him in the temple talking theology with the elders. And Mary said to her son, How is it that you have caused such worry for you and for me and my father? Don't you know that we've been looking for you these three days? And what did Jesus say? That 12-year-old boy said, How is it that you were seeking me? Didn't you know I would be in my father's house? 
in his ministry. He said he was the son of God. For example, he met that woman at the well who wanted to argue theology with him. And finally, he just kept, he kept talking to her and she said, well, I know Bible says one day Jesus will come and he will, uh, the Christ will come and he will reveal all things to us. And Jesus said, I the, that talk to you, I'm he. I am the Messiah. You remember even that mock of, mockery of a trial that Jesus endured. You remember this? He was brought before the Supreme Court of Israel. And they tried every way in the world to convict him of some crime and they found nothing. And finally, the high priest himself, the high priest of Israel, the chief justice of their supreme court, was so frustrated, he stood up and pointed at Jesus and said, I adjure you, I put you under oath. I demand under oath that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And under oath, Jesus said, I am. I am. That high priest ripped his garments in two, cried out blasphemy. That's the reason he was standing before Pilate. Because he claimed to be the son of God. And Pilate asked him himself. Pilate said, are you the king of the Jews? And what was Jesus' answer? You have spoken rightly. My kingdom is not of this world. But it is as you have said. I am king of the Jews. Jesus, by his own claim said he was the Christ, the Son of God. And my friends, how little did Pilate or anybody else know that 48 hours later, there would be even greater confirmation that Jesus was the Son of God, more even than his own testimony. There would be the testimony of the empty tomb. The empty tomb. Pilate, that strutting moral coward that he was, yielded to the mob. He knew it was wrong. He couldn't wash his hands of it, but he yielded to the mob. And Jesus was executed. He was expertly executed by Roman soldiers who knew exactly how to carry out the most torturous death possible. He was crucified, executed. And to make sure that he was dead, they took a spear and jammed it into his side. Jesus was buried. He was buried. The tomb was shut with a huge stone. It was sealed. That meant that there was a Roman seal put on that tomb which carried the very authority of Tiberius Caesar that anyone who violated that tomb would be violating the law of Caesar. And then on top of that, Roman soldiers were put to guard that tomb. Jesus was buried. His tomb was shut. It was sealed and it was secured. And on the third day, there was one undisputed fact. 
the tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. Now, how did it become empty? How did the tomb of a man executed, confirmed to have been executed, buried, shot in a tomb, sealed, guarded by Roman soldiers, how did his tomb become empty? Well, there was only two possibilities. There's only two possibilities. The first possibility is someone or some people moved the body. Someone or some people moved the body. Now, who would do that? Would his enemies do that? No, that's the last thing they wanted done. They didn't want that body moved. That's the reason they wanted the seal. That's the reason they wanted the soldiers. They did not want the body removed. And if his enemies had removed the body, they could have stopped this nonsense called Christianity in one day by presenting publicly the decaying corpse of Jesus of Nazareth. But they couldn't do it because they didn't have the body. Now, if his enemies did not move the body, who else could have moved the body? His friends. Oh, you know, his friends. Those audacious, courageous, very, very faith-believing men. Yeah, those men huddled in the shadows. Those men devastated and depressed. Those men fearing for their lives. Yes, they went down to the tomb, overcame the Roman guard, broke the Roman seal, moved the stone away. Then they stole the body of their master. And then for the next few years, they allowed themselves to be tortured, their families put in prison, their children taken from them, and give them lives. They did that all because they knew they had stolen the body of Jesus. Yeah, right. Jesus' body was moved. And it wasn't moved by his enemies. It wasn't moved by his friends. Listen here. Jesus moved himself. He moved himself. And he didn't need the stone rolled away to get out. The stone wasn't rolled away so Jesus could get out. He was already out. It was rolled away to let his disciples in. Jesus moved himself. My dear friends, that is the testimony. That's the testimony, not of one or two people who had some kind of religious ecstatic experience thinking that Jesus was risen. Not from one or two. No, all of his disciples, even his doubting disciple Thomas, who said, unless I can put my fingers in the nail prints, unless I can put my hand in his side, I will not believe. He believed because he saw Jesus. Even Jesus' own brother James, who did not believe in him, who believed he was not the Christ, James became a believer. Why? Because he met his resurrected brother. That's the reason he became a believer. And think of the dumbfounded followers Friends, over the next 40 days, Jesus showed himself not just to five or six people, not just to a few hundred people, but thousands of people, even 500 people at one time noticed and saw and experienced that Jesus of Nazareth, who was dead, was now alive. Dear friends, listen to me. 
the most indisputable fact in the history of mankind is that Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. There's no question about it. There's never been anything more verified and attested to than the resurrection of Jesus. He's alive. That's the unconditional reality. And so that brings an unavoidable responsibility. Then what shall I do with Jesus? Who's called the Christ? This risen Lord who by His Spirit walks these aisles and these rows this morning. Who stops by individuals and His presence is made known to you. What shall I do with Jesus who's called the Christ? Personal question. It's the essential question. It's an unavoidable question. The last thing I want you to see, my friends, listen carefully. It is the eternal question. It's the eternal question because eternity is in the answer. Eternity is determined by how you answer that question. Your destiny... Where you will be 10 million years from this morning, and you will be alive 10 million years from this morning. Where you will be is determined by how you answer that question. Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? For those who believe, what a promise Jesus has given. Here's the promise, John 6, 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has, present tense, has eternal life. Not just going to heaven by and by, but whoever believes in Jesus has, present tense, eternal life. What a promise, right? But what a warning. Here's what Jesus gives as a warning. Jesus said this, John 8, 26. Unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Jesus came to save people from their sins. But He only saves from their sins the people who believe I am He. What does that mean? That I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. I am the Savior, the one and only way to God. Unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Now some people say this, well, so far I'm just undecided. I, I'm just, I haven't made up my mind, I'm just undecided and can I tell you my dear friend very humbly but very truthfully with all the sincerity of my heart this question does not permit the answer undecided this isn't a multiple choice question where you can say well when it comes to Jesus yes no or undecided there is no undecided you see to not decide is to be already deciding when you already know, 
and you know that Jesus is the Son of God, that He died on the cross for your sins, He's resurrected from, your, from the grave, that He is alive, to say you've not decided means you have decided because not to believe is to disbelieve. There is no in-between. We are either believing on the Son or we are disbelieving at this moment. There is no undecided. And what does it mean to still not have believed in Jesus? What does it mean? Well, listen to Jesus. Listen to the sweet voice of Jesus. Here's what he said. John 3, 36. Whoever believes has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son, notice, to not believe is to disobey the Son because He commands us to believe in Him. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God is remaining on Him. The wrath of God is still hovering over the head of anyone who has not yet believed in Jesus. So here's the crucial question. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? To believe in Jesus is to have faith. It is to respond to Jesus. It is to respond to Him... In faith. What is faith? What is true faith? Well, here's the best way I know to remember it. Faith is this. Forsaking all, I trust Him. That's faith. You see, forsaking all, that means repentance. It means I recognize I'm going the wrong way. I've been living for myself. I've been trying to save myself. I've been trying just to please myself. Really, I've been being my own Lord, and that is wrong. And I turn from that. I turn from that. That's what repentance means. I turn away from being my own Lord, and I trust Him. I, that means reliance. I'm relying on Jesus. I'm not relying on my goodness to save my soul. I'm not relying on my good works. I'm not relying that when I get to heaven, God's going to measure my good and my bad. I'm not relying on that. I'm relying on Jesus alone. That is faith. Forsaking all, I trust Him. The question. Then what shall I do with Jesus who's called Christ? What are you going to do with him? Would you bow your head just for a moment? Just for a moment, bow your head, please. 